You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. can bust out your phone right now and use the QR code. Thank you, Jackie Garcia. Um, and yeah, give it up for Jackie. Come on. She's back there helping kids get squared away. She does a lot around here. Um, she does a lot around here. So um, yeah, check out Summer Studies. Uh, we'd love to have you sign up sooner than later if you can do it, just so that leaders can know what to expect and how to prepare, okay? So please uh, do that. You could take a picture of that, I think, or you could sign up right now. Awesome. Uh, secondly, just by way of, of letting you guys know, um, we prayed for Justin and Laurel in Ecuador, Ecuador and their leadership uh, this morning. And along those lines, my wife and my two girls, and then Amanda Hobart, who's the wife of the lead pastor at Redeemer City, one of our church plants, uh, are going to Ecuador. They leave on Tuesday night for a women's conference. So Laurel has initiated a women's conference and didn't know how that would go down or how that would be received. And immediately they hit their their um, capacity of 50 women on the property. And then they had like people saying, can we sleep on the floor? Can we camp out in the yard? And so they expanded it to 70 people or 70 women. And so obviously uh, scratching a niche there with this conference. And so if you see them, um, you might just want to say, hey, thanks for going and, um, and pray for them, that they would really have a, a, an amazing impact for the sake of discipleship of Ecuadorian women um, where they don't have conferences. We can go to conferences every weekend if we wanted to in the United States. They don't have that in Ecuador uh, for good, solid Bible teaching. And so um, thanks to them for going. Um, this is kind of a, one more about kind of where we're headed as a church. So historically, one of our um, desires is that city groups would, that we'd be certain, let me back up, um, statement of the church, vision statement, we want to be all about uh, planting churches and making disciples among neighbors and nations, right? So we have adopted Ecuador and North Africa, and for the sake of the recording, I'm not going to name the country, but you all know what I mean. Um, but we've also adopted different places in Madison where there's a real need for us to serve. And the way that we have served formally as a church historically is through city groups. And every city group leader um, and city group had the mandate to serve some type of marginalized population in Madison. Well, recently we went on a leadership retreat as elders plus Jackie, and we were reevaluating everything, and we just felt like with a consultant that came in to help us that our city group leader job description was a little too big. And for the sake of perseverance and long-term sustainability, we wanted to kind of shrink the job description a little bit and streamline it. So we're taking serve out of the city group leader job description and placing it uh, kind of church-wide. And you're going to be hearing more about this. I talked about it at the family meeting, but we always have to over-communicate with a, uh, a group this size. And so we're taking it out of city group leader job description and making it church-wide. What does that mean? Well, you're going to hear about what that means this, this fall when we try to launch some things more formally. But we want to adopt some, 
some places to serve in Madison, just like we've adopted uh, North Africa and Ecuador. And so things like single moms, women that are being trafficked, senior citizens that are isolated and alone, um, that are shut in in some sense, um, and some other things that you're going to be hearing about, like an international students. And so the idea is that the church has certain point people for each one of those things that we're adopting as a church, and where you all come in is to be involved, okay? And to uh, say, yeah, I'm maybe like this year, I want to serve women that are being trafficked. And it's going to be like something simple, and the on-ramp isn't going to be probably too challenging. Um, and, and we just need us to be involved as a church. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 10, 45 says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so if you're a Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus that didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's who we are as Christians. And so having your life structured to make this kind of thing a priority is a vital part of our discipleship. Christianity has never been and never will be, I come, I put my butt in a seat, and I consume what the church has to offer. That's not Christianity, okay? Um, What Christianity is, is I give my life in service for God's glory and my joy. Your greatest joy in life is not as a consumer, but as a servant. That's the upside-down ethic of the kingdom of God. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm preaching a different sermon already, so I'm going to get off that. You're going to hear more about this in the future, so please be poised uh, to, 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 to launch and, and see these things get off the ground uh, with great joy in the fall, okay? Um, finally, we're going to do a Q&A after the service. We haven't done Q&A in a while, so I'm going to preach a little shorter, and uh, if you have any questions about anything from Psalm 3, um, we're, we can talk about it, so... Uh, we're all family here. Don't be shy. And so Jackie's going to come, uh, Jacqueline, sorry, is going to come and uh, read Psalm 3 for us this morning. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. All right, we're going to see three things in this psalm. I'm just going to give you the outline and see if you can track with it with me this morning. We're going to see what the psalmist sees and hears. What does he see and hear? Secondly, what does he believe? And thirdly, what does he pray for? So what he sees and hears what he believes, and what he prays for in light of these things, okay? Look at verse 1 with me. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. So right off the bat, 
we understand a bit about the predicament. It's not a small group of people. It's not a medium-sized group of people. It's many people, okay? See that repeated there? He says many twice for the sake of emphasis. So he's really up against it here, okay? Let's keep reading. Many, third time, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. So what is this? If someone says, there's no salvation for you, what is that? It's kind of like a taunt, right? He's being taunted. Like, you think your God's going to save you? You think he has the power to deliver you? You think there's going to be any relief from this God of yours? This has always been the taunt of the enemy. Like, the poignant, poignant scene, my favorite scene for as dark as it is in the movie The Passion of the Christ is Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane and the character of Satan Um, You know, they take some creative license here, but the point is is very, very well taken. He's praying to the Father, and the character of Satan is right here, whispering kind of in his ear, you can't do this. You can't save these people. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You you don't have the power to save. Your mission is going to fail. You can't do this. That's, That's ultimately God's enemy, capital E, and God's enemies, small e, for all of time, that's the main part of their ammunition and is their accusation. The ammunition is their accusation, right? But look 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 at verse two again with me. It's not just about physical safety here, although that certainly is in view. It says there is no salvation for him in God, look at the first line again. Many are saying of my soul. So he's talking metaphysical here, beyond just the physical body. They're saying about his soul, right? They're, they're taunting him about his eternal security. The accusation is you will not be saved by God physically or, maybe more importantly, spiritually. Their their accusation is about his eternal state. Your sin is too deep. God will not save you. Like, this is the satanic accusation. I mean, the very name Satan, if you study the word, means accuser. And that's why Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers who accuse them day and night before our God. So this is a satanic assault in some sense. You're lost forever. You can't be saved. You've gone too far. Give up now. It's not worth it. You'll be lost forever. So that's what the psalmist sees, right? The word many, three times, many are against me, rising up against me, and they're saying things, accusing me that there's no salvation for me in light of what I've done. What does God's word say? 
How does God deliver? There's a lot we can say here. Let me just give you one scripture that I, I pray that we would all memorize. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, great rhetorical question. Who can be against us? It's a great rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Another great rhetorical question. Did you hear that? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And that's good news. So that's his predicament. What he sees, what he hears. O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But now he turns from what he sees and what he hears to now, secondly, what does he believe? Look at verse 3. What does he believe? Look how his attention shifts. What is the object of his attention and how has it shifted? Check it out in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He says, verse 3, look at it. A shield. What's a shield? A shield is, it's not really an offensive weapon unless you're Captain America, um, right? But historically, you don't throw the shield. You defend yourself with the shield. It's a form of protection. It was the best protection a soldier could have. So he's saying, God, you're my protection. And he says, you're my glory. What does that mean? Well, glory is like a lot we could say here, but what does it mean when he says, God, you are my glory well, if I have any dignity or anything that's respectable in me, it's because I'm made in the image of God. So in that sense, all of us have a sense of glory, right? We are glorious in that, in that we are made in God's image. So ultimately, it's about God's glory. But if there's anything that's good about me, anything respectable, if I have dignity, it comes from the Lord, so it's like he recognizes that there's glory in me as a human being, but it comes from you, God. And then thirdly, he says, you're the lifter of my head. He knows that when we are in a humble posture, when we're in a humble position, God promises to lift those that are humbled. There's a lot of Bible to support that, but one of the Psalms says that he is near the brokenhearted. God's very nature is to be merciful with the humble. What does the Bible say? He opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. That's just what this is saying. I'm in a humble spot here, but Lord, I know you lift up the humble. You will lift my head. Like downward facing is like shame, right? We all know what that's like. If I'm ashamed of myself, my, my head's probably going to be down, my gaze down. But God says, no, no, lift up your head. I've taken your shame. I've dealt with it. I can bear it for you. So 
God, you're my protection. You're you're my glory. You're, You're the lifter of my head. This is what the psalmist reminds himself of, see? In, in, the, in the face of the attack, in the face of the accusations, he turns away from looking at that to looking at who God is. In that scene from the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen it, uh, Jesus never looks over once at Satan. He just looks up to the Father and just keeps praying. So he reminds himself that he has a protector. He has one who makes him have dignity and worth. And he's, he, he has one who lifts him from the pit of humiliation. And then let's keep going. Let's see, let's see what else happens. What happens now is he remembers his past for the sake of his present. This is a, another huge Bible theme that is so helpful for us in our, in our journey with the Lord in our lives. He remembers his past for the sake of the presence. He remembers the past for the sake of his presence. Look how he does this, and look how the, the verbs are in past tense, starting in verse 4. I cried, past tense, to the Lord, and he answered me, past tense, from his holy hill. I lay down, past tense, and slept. I woke, past tense, again, for the Lord sustained, past tense, me. What is he doing here? He's remembering a time in the past where he came to the Lord in the midst of some crazy predicament. And what does he testify to here? That God was faithful. That God showed up. That God helped him. That God answered him. God sustained him. He's remembering something in the past. He's preaching to himself, God, this is what happened in the past, so how could I not believe you in the present? How could I not draw upon what you've already done for the sake of this predicament I find myself in? I mean, I I can relate to this in very real ways. I've had people in my adult life in ministry um, come at me with accusations. And those sometimes can haunt you. Those can keep you up at night. And, and, And they can be very, very painful. But I look back and, and do the model of the psalmist here. And I look back over those experiences and I see how I can join with the psalmist and say, the Lord sustained me. He did. Like, I'm, I guess I'm still here, right? I haven't, I haven't given up yet. I mean, not, no praise to me. The Lord is who gets praised because he's the one who sustains me. I've tried to draw near to the Lord in those experiences. So what happens is the more you go through that, it gives you more faith to move into the future when those type of things continue to happen. Like God has been so faithful to us in the past, and I can rattle off so many examples. How could I believe that he's going to abandon me now? You with me? Right? 
That's how looking back for the present as you move into the future works in the Christian life. Like the the classic biblical example of this is, is the prophets calling out to God's people in the Old Testament and saying, remember, God is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's just another way of doing the same thing. Remember what happened. It's the same God who's with you right now in the present. And so let that inform you as you move into the future by faith in him. So let me ask you all this. How can you all practice this right now with wherever you're at in life? Like how has God delivered you from maybe some accusation or from opposition so that it can strengthen you right now and embold your faith as you move into the future? See how the psalmist is doing this? Look at verse 6. So now he's speaking present tense, moving into the future. Like, in light of my reflection on the past, verse 6, I will not, like future-oriented, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people. He's talked about the many, and now he's talking about the many again, but now it's from a posture of strength because he's remembered the Lord, right? Right? So I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See the emotional progression here? When God's in the center of it? So we've got what he sees. We've got what he believes. Right? And now, finally, we see what he prays. What he prays. Look at verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The first half, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. I mean, this is just like a, look look at the language. It's just like a straight, direct, to the point kind of prayer. Not a lot of flowery language, just kind of some, some imperatives here. Like, Lord, I need your action in this. Save, help, rescue. Like, sometimes we can be under such pressure or accusation, or, or maybe in the future you're going to find yourself in this kind of situation, where emotionally you're just kind of reduced to, like, childlike praying. And, and I really relate to that. The older I get, it's just like, Lord, I need your help. Like, Dad, help me and that's all you got and that's kind of what's happening here but he gives a little more he, he, he uses some violent language here doesn't he look at it for you strike all my enemies on the cheek you break the teeth of the wicked so striking enemies on the cheek historically is a way to offer like a, a rebuke so it's more like a slap on the, on the cheek. It's not going to like do the most damage, but, but it symbolizes a, a rebuke, okay? That's what that meant. That's aggressive, right? But the next one is even more aggressive and more vivid, right? You break the teeth of the wicked, 
So what is this all about? Well, we uh, recently, our dog of 15 years passed away, and so we got a new dog. I've talked about my dog. I'm the dog guy. And a lot of you don't have dog people, or you're not dog people, and so you're like, we're talking about your dog. I get it. But just bear with me, okay? So I'm going to talk about my dog. Uh, we love her. Her name's Winnie. And, um, you know, a dog, if you think about how they operate, like very mouth-centered, right? Like if you throw the stick and she chases it, she doesn't come upon it and like pick it up with her paws and like try to like bat it around, right? She's going at the stick with her mouth. Like a dog is very, very mouth-centered. Like she picks things up with her mouth. She, uh, she defends herself with her mouth. Um, like her, her legs and paws are not hardly useful at all other than running around, right? That's just what dogs are. So if you were to remove her teeth, like she would be in a world of hurt, hard time eating, really nothing to de- defend herself with. She couldn't grab things. You know, they pick up things with their mouth, Right? So you, you break the teeth of a dog, you remove the teeth of the dog, she would be rendered basically harmless, right? And that's the idea here. That's the idea here. He's saying, God, would you render my enemies harmless? That's my prayer. For God to break the teeth of the enemy is to render them harmless, But this kind of language, it's all over the Psalms. And I want to just camp out here and and help us think through this. This aggressive, sometimes violent language. Like, how do we think about that? How do we think about praying this way? Because most of us in this room don't live in a culture of violence. And that's that's a good thing. That's something to be thankful for. And that's the first thing I want to say. Like, if you haven't lived in much of a culture of physical violence or severe oppression from wicked people, be thankful. Be thankful. That's something to praise God for in your praying, right? But, But remember, this is not normative for Christians all throughout the history of the world. This isn't normative for most human beings, let alone Christians, in the world, the history of the world, right? So first of all, be thankful if that's not you and you have a hard time relating to like this kind of violent language or like asking God to do violent things against wicked people. Second, remember that for people that are in a context of oppression, severe oppression, violent oppression, like the psalmist finds himself in, God's justice to rebuke and render powerless the enemies of him, like that's a really good thing. That's a really good thing, right? Uh, Let me just give you an example. So in our, uh, with our friends who have planted a church in North Africa, small little church with some Muslim believers there, it's beautiful. And one of the ways that uh, a, a Muslim woman 
who becomes a Christian, one of the ways that she's persecuted is by trying to force arranged marriages. So if dad or brother can force her, now this is foreign to us in our kind of cultural understanding here in Madison, but it's not for them. Um, Force her to get married to a Muslim man, then her ability to be a Christian will be that much harder, right? That's wickedness, right? From God's perspective, that's wickedness. And, and, and coercion of, of the worst kind. Like, I would love for God, I have no problem praying Psalm 7, verse 7, Psalm 3, verse 7, break the teeth of that dad or that brother, meaning, it's a metaphor, render them harmless. God, would you do that? That's the idea here. There's there's Christians all throughout the world right now, even if it's not us in the room today, it's hard to like relate to praying this way, but remember, all throughout the world, even today, Christians experience pressure like this, where, where praying like this is not foreign. It's a really good thing because of what they experience. Like, we picked up a book um, called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Um, I'd encourage you all to buy it. Uh, we read it aloud to our kids, um, probably age eight on up, could handle it. Uh, and it's basically just stories of persecution from the last 70, 80 years moving into more of present day in places like China, Ukraine, uh, Russia, Somalia. And it will awaken you to kind of the Disneyland that most of us live in here in Madison. But, but the Disneyland of our Christianity here in Madison, you know, that's unique. It really is unique in terms of the history of the world and a present-day world. Man, I, I, buy that book. Read it to your family or read it with some friends. And, and verse 7 won't seem that strange anymore. Right? If you've lived these horrors, this psalm comes alive for you in ways that many of us can't relate to in the room. But, but this psalm then becomes our language, and that's a good thing. Again, if you don't relate to needing to pray this way, it's okay. Be thankful for that, okay? But just remember, other people in the, in, in, throughout the history of the world have needed praying from the saints for them like this, and people today in our world still need that from us. So maybe when we read a psalm like this, and we can't even think of someone who's like oppressing us, it's a good thing, then we pray the psalm for those that are being oppressed, that are being accused, that are being assaulted for their faith. For those that are planting churches in places like North Africa that we partner with, the persecuted church in China is very, very real today. In Iran, in Iraq, is very, very real today. All throughout the 1040 window and other places. There are people in our city, even if it's not all of us sitting in here today, even in Madison, that are experiencing 
the oppression from the wicked. So it's not just far off. It is neighbors and it, it's neighbors and it is nations. But let's not forget our neighbors. Lord, would you break their teeth, render them harmless? And then finally, we have verse eight. Verse eight: Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So look at how far he's come. Look back at verse 2. Verse 2 is, the accusation is, there's no salvation for him and God. And verse 8 is saying, I'm not listening to them. I'm going to affirm the truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So whatever they say doesn't matter because salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm going to trust in him. You see that? See how he's moved emotionally? with God at the center that moves him along emotionally in light of his circumstances? God will save as he sees fit. And we know post-cross and resurrection how God sees fit to save. Amen? That Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead in real space, time, and history so that all who repent of their sin and come to him in faith will be saved. That's the salvation that belongs to the Lord. So we call people, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. What have we seen? What he sees and hears, what he believes, and what he prays. Let me, let me just close with this verse from a song by John Newton that we don't sing, but it's a beautiful, beautiful portion of a hymn The hymn is called Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat. And it really lines up a lot with this psalm and its beautiful poetry. It says this, Bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered by thy side I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus that we're reminded of today that you are a shield about us because of the cross and empty tomb. You're the lifter of our heads because of the cross and empty tomb And Lord, I pray that we would um, remember who you are and what you've done for the sake of our present and for the sake of our future. Lord, would you help those that are under the weight of this kind of oppression um, that they would remember you and that you would intercede on their behalf. Um, Lord, we trust you. Would you intercede on their behalf to render the enemy harmless? May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We have some questions. Oh, my word. We may have to do a podcast here. Uh, Let me look these over quick. Um, Yes, okay. Good question. 
uh, I was anticipating this question, so uh, I'll, I'll do this one. Does living in a New Testament, quote, turn the other cheek context affect how we should interpret prayers like this? Or should we still interpret this call for justice the same way the Old Testament audience did? Does everybody understand that? Maybe I can restate it. Like, um, you know, Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, give them the other one. If you're being oppressed and forced to walk a mile, go another mile with them. Like, that's where we get the expression, go the extra mile, right? So how has our thinking about this changed from... uh, Old Testament to New Testament. Has it changed at all? Like Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. So, great question. I think, I think, uh, and I'd love to hear what you guys think if, if there's more you would add to this. I think um, the issue is what is God's role and what is our role, okay? So, a classic text is Romans 12, and I'll just open to it quick. Uh, At the end of Romans 12, verse 19 of Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Okay? So, um... For it is written, and now he quotes the Old Testament, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here's the deal. If you are intent on exacting revenge or vengeance all in yourself, as a sinner, the problem with that is that it can consume you, Right? It's usually not like the movies where you get revenge and it's like, yeah, and go have a beer with your buddies and, you know, move on. It's like that's not how revenge usually works. And so the issue is uh, who's going to actually do revenge and who's going to balance the scales of justice? Is that in our ability as, as human beings? It's not. Now, <laughs> Man, there's a lot to say. But moving on from Romans 12 is Romans 13. And and Romans 13 says that God has given human governments to actually be his arm of justice in the world today at times. Okay? So there is that. There is a human side to trying to balance the scales of justice. But we all know living in a sinful world, it will never be perfect. So we hope in our God that one day we'll return and finally and forever make all things right. He will take care of it, okay? So back to what I originally said. What's God's role and what's our role? Well, our role, okay, in light of our human hearts, yeah, pray for repentance. Love your enemies. But at the same time, we can pray, God, I know I'm not able to always do it, but you can. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would make things right. He asks us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your will on earth as it is in heaven. 
So his will is not systematic oppression of weak people or whatever the example may be, right? So it's good to pray, Lord, would you do justice? Would you do on earth as it is in heaven where there is no injustice? Make sense? So God's role is he's going to take care of it. It's good to pray for him that either there would be repentance or that there would be justice, right? Like the reality is for sinners, either Jesus will deal with their sin. This is for all of us, but like we, it's helpful to think about this when it comes to those who are doing the oppressing. Either those who are oppressing will have that oppression dealt with at the cross when they come and confess it, and Jesus will bear it for them in their place, just like he does for all of us if we're Christians, or they will bear it on their own in hell, right? So justice will be done. Justice is found at the cross or in hell, right? That's how it is for all of us. So you can pray, Lord, would you bring them to repentance? And may your sin, or I'm sorry, may their sin be covered by you or may, you, may it be dealt with, Lord, do justice as you do justice, at the cross or in hell. Ultimately, that's how you can pray, okay? Uh, one more. Let's see. Um, what's the name of the book you recommended about those who have dealt with oppression? I'll say it again. The Insanity of God. It's a strange title, but you'll get it when you read the book. The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. All right, we're going to, um, mm, tempted to do one more. Just give me one second. Um, if God is for us, who could be against us? Yes, God is for us, so long as we are in line with his truth. In conflict, when many might be against us, even other Christians, how can we be sure that we are on the right, we are on God's side and not merely hijacking God's word to support our agenda. Yeah, amen, amen. Uh, so yeah, there, you can take any scripture and twist it to meet your own selfish agenda, right? Um, if God is for me, who can be against me? Like, that's never a license for you just to do whatever you want without any um, accountability, right? Um, so how would we prevent that? Uh, it's going to happen in community, right? It's, that's one of the reasons why we have to open our Bibles together. And like, for example, if, if I'm cheating on my wife, this is an extreme example, but you'll get the point. If I'm cheating on my wife, and, I, and you come and you rebuke me of that, as you should, and I say, you can't be against me because God's for me. No, you say, no, 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 no. Let's open the Scripture from the Old Testament, let's go Ten Commandments all the way to the New Testament, Christ in the church, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't uh, cheat on his wife. Jesus doesn't cheat on the church. Uh, this is a picture, that, I mean, I won't preach that sermon. You get where I'm going, right? We open the scriptures together to correct one another, right? And if you won't listen to scripture, that's where church discipline comes in and, and all that. So uh, one of the best ways is, 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 is in community um, so that we don't leverage these, twist these scriptures for our own selfish gain, okay? Um, I'll review more questions. Uh, Maybe there'll be a podcast that'll come out of them, uh, so be looking for that. And David's going to come now and lead us in the Lord's Supper.